As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Andrew McNeil. Andrew is a Haas Executive MBA class of 2017. He is currently the Senior Director and Global Head of Enablement at Flexport. He is also a coach, advisor, and mentor for the UC Berkeley Executive Education Program. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you uh, for having me, Sean. Appreciate it. Andrew, can you start off just sharing a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you're from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a military family. My dad was a career Air Force officer and a pilot. And in my junior and senior year of high school, my dad actually took a position at Berkeley, moving out to California. And he was the professor of military science at Berkeley, leaving the ROTC program there. So that's how I ended up in California and getting my first exposure to Berkeley. Where were you before that? We moved around. Yeah, we moved around all over the place. You know, the way the Air Force structures their officer careers is you sort of move every two to three years. So I lived everywhere from New Jersey, D.C., Oklahoma, South Carolina, Illinois, Florida. And so you kind of rotate around as your uh, father gets different positions of increasing responsibility. Where's your dad from originally? What, what part of the country? Boston. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. I've always, always been interested. I'm from the Midwest, so I'm always interested in where people are from. Yeah, a long line of uh, Boston electricians, but my dad broke away and, and became a pilot, um, which brought us out west. That's awesome. What did you study for your undergrad? Yeah, so I studied economics at Cal State Chief up north, but I didn't join college right out of high school. In fact, I joined enlisted in the Army into the National Guard as an infantryman. Did a semester, my first semester, which would have been my freshman year, fall semester. I was in boot camp, came back and went back into reserve capacity. And then I actually applied to Chico State and started studying economics. About a semester in, I got deployed to Iraq. So I was 19 years old and got sent to a train up in Texas and then over to Baghdad, Iraq, um, I guess, January of 2005. So I spent a year there and came back and said, I definitely need to go finish this degree and, and go get a job or less people are shooting at me. And you know, finished my degree pretty early at Chico and took a job at Merrill Lynch in wealth management in San Francisco. Uh, this was also about the time of the financial crisis. And uh, I think believe, I believe it was 2008 now and realized that wasn't probably an area I wanted to be in. So I ended up becoming an intelligence officer in the Army. I was still in the reserves at the time. Did that. Once I got enough experience as an intelligence officer in the Army, I applied for the Special Forces and essentially you know, did that for the next five years, two years of training, and then about two and a half, three years um, as a detachment. For us lay people, what, what are the Special Forces? I presume it's different from the Navy SEALs, right? Yeah. So the Navy SEALs are the Navy's special operations. The Army has the Green Berets or the Special Forces. If you think about each branch of the military, what their core function is to you know take a sort of a military fighting capacity and own that space. So the Navy is very much, their mandate is to control the ocean. The Army is to control land, obviously Air Force, the Air, Coast Guard, Homeland, Coast. So the SEALs are their special operations force that would go and be able to conduct special operations from the, you know, like what they would call an amphibious capacity. Um, the Marines, for example, are the Navy's infantry force. So they ride on the ships. Once you get to an island, they would be the ones that would move on and secure the land there. So the Green Berets, you know, with all that context, are the Army's special operations force, very focused on conducting clandestine and confidential operations for the United States Army. 
I was listening to David Goggins last year, and I remember him talking about you know, trying for the SEALs and then going for the Ranger. Is there a difference between the Army Ranger and the Green Berets? Yeah, so the Army Rangers, it's actually, a, it's kind of a tricky topic. So the Army Rangers are what's considered like an infantry force, an elite infantry force. So think like a really advanced strike force. If you think about the type of missions that the Army might have, hey, we need to go secure this airfield. We need to go get this bad guy. You would send in potentially the Rangers. Now, the Army also has a school called Army Ranger School, uh, which is a leadership training opportunity that's about, let's say it's two or three months long, that the, you cannot be part of the Ranger unit, which is called the 75th Ranger Regiment, um, but you could still go to this school. So you can be a graduate of the Army Ranger School, but not necessarily a member of the Ranger unit. Where the Rangers would differ from like a Green Berets, for example, the Green Berets are much more oriented around, it's a 12-man team that's autonomous, that can go anywhere in the world, you know, behind enemy lines potentially, and work by, with, and through the indigenous people. So you have a number of tools in your toolkit to enact any kind of mission that you want to conduct. Whereas the Rangers, you're sort of, uh, you know, they might beat me up for this, but a little bit more of a one-trick pony. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that to me. The moment you mentioned, I was like, I was really curious about about this area. So you were deployed for, I believe, for 13 years, was it? How long Total's were you deployed? Total service was 13 plus years, but yeah, but I did active duty and reserve time. I went to college during that time and you know, had some different jobs. But of the 13 plus years I was in, I was active duty. So meaning I was there every day for about half that time and uh, deployed twice for combat operations. So one to Iraq and then one to Afghanistan and then a training mission in Southeast Asia. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a uh, little bit you know, about your reason for coming to Haas and what you've been doing afterwards since. Yeah, of course. So when I was leaving the military in 2016, I knew I wanted to work in technology. I was just talking to somebody the other day about this, but it sort of feels the feels like the gold rush of our time, yeah. this big digital transformation that's happening in the world. And I thought I'd be remiss in many ways if I look back and say I wasn't a part of that. Like we're, we're leveraging technology all, all over the world to automate and digitize and transform all of these traditional industries. And just felt like that was the place that that people are going, you know, that want to flex that innovation, that creativity to have impact on the world. All that being said, I had no idea what I was going to do in that space or, or where my experiences added would add value. So at the end of the day, I was like, I need to go to business school. And what's a great business school in the Bay Area that I happen to have a little bit of, of a connection with? And, and Berkeley was the, the place that I wanted to be to do that. The connection to Silicon Valley, the innovation that goes around it, the, obviously the camaraderie and the connection just to all of these businesses and on the West Coast specifically. So I was able to convince Berkeley to, to let me in. And uh, shouldn't have been hard. Not with your background. <laughs> making the trade. Yeah, it's funny because business schools, I think, recognize the leadership that you bring from a military background. But it's actually very hard to get someone in technology to hire you out of the military. I struggled very much trying to just get an interview. And the funniest thing about it was as soon as I got the Berkeley acceptance, I popped that thing on my resume and I got an interview with Amazon. And no one was giving me the time of day before that. So it's so funny. It was just a testament to that. Once Berkeley's willing to sign off on you, you have the street cred. Some of my friends call it the technology stink. Once you have that on you, everybody's like, okay, this guy's legit. 
So I was able to get into the program. Yeah, but I was able to get into the program and I hadn't learned anything really yet. But all of a sudden, everyone's taking my calls and took me seriously. <laughs> this is why I want people to hear more about Green Berets and these positions. Like you guys should have higher Green Berets. <laughs> that should be a street cred by itself. You know what it is though, Sean? It's, and I, this is like a quote actually from, I won't name the company, but a large uh, leading technology company in the Bay Area. Hey, I would love to have a beer with you, but I don't know what to do with my company. So I think people respect it. And they're like, wow, that's great. But what do you actually do? And what can you do for my organization? Now, having the five years under my belt in corporate America, I think I can translate that a little bit better now. Like, hey, I can plan, I can organize people, I can manage projects, I can see around corners pretty well, I can lead teams, right? You have to be able to articulate that. And when you're first trying to make that transition, it doesn't, it's difficult. It's an additional mental step that you have to do. When you're trying to discuss, you know, in an interview or a really difficult interview, it's another step you have to take and it becomes pretty difficult. But yeah, I would love to be able to tell that story more effectively for folks um, transitioning out and what value they can add for business organizations. I was just going to say any listeners, any uh, veterans that are listening who are having that difficulty transitioning, they should definitely reach out to you and seek that advice. Yeah, happy, happy to chat. Is very relevant. How did you transition from, from Amazon to Flexport? Actually, one of my classmates worked at Flexport, Andrew Price. I, I saw that you knew him or oh, have yeah, been I before. Think we were acquainted. He left sort of thereafter my first joining of Flexport, but we did have some overlap. And the Coast Guard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now that my body's all beat up after years in the army, I, sometimes I think the Coast Guard might have been the place to be. So I spent some time in Amazon, two and a half years. It was really important for me, you know, from a branding perspective, I really wanted a big technology company on my resume. And what's great about Amazon in a lot of capacities, they're not without their problems from a business perspective. They're a great business, but they're not without their own challenges. But what's great about Amazon is that you can navigate that company and you can move internally very easily. And they actually encourage it as a culture. What's great about that is when you come in like a person like myself that just recently transitioned out of the military, you have an opportunity to go and take a bunch of different roles every single year, right? You can kind of move. I went from what I would call like vendor management partnerships to program management to a highly technical product interaction role. So I was able to get different exposure of the business and saw you know, where some things that were interesting to me were and where some areas that I probably wanted to shy away from were. So it was a great, great opportunity. And then once again, like the, the branding play of Berkeley on my resume, Amazon had that same effect. And now I have two of these things where these big brands and these trusted um, institutions have kind of stamped me off as, as uh, you know, somebody that, that can be effective in their area. So after about two and a half years at Amazon, I started kicking the tires at different technology organizations out there. Different. I, I really wanted to go smaller. I sort of draw the parallel of when I joined the, the army, I was in the big army, the conventional army. And there's a lot of similarities between huge organizations and the army. Right? It's been around hundreds yeah. of years and there's a lot of you know, bureaucracy, for better or worse. I really wanted to go smaller. I liked the feel of being in special forces where I was a small team. I was able to move, make decisions. I was empowered. A lot of autonomy, a lot of ambiguous problems. So I knew I wanted to go smaller. So I, I said, what's the startup I can go to that has the highest degree of likelihood of going public? I chose WeWork, which ironically enough, ended up not being the, the lock that I thought it was. But it, nonetheless, I went over there and it was a tremendous opportunity. It was sort of a joke. It was the life cycle of a 30-year company all condensed into about a year <laughs> of hi hyperscale. And then all of a sudden, you're unwinding everything and laying people off and unwinding organizations. And so it was a great opportunity still for me to just see that you know not every business is is Amazon. 
right? Not every yeah. business is going to be hyper successful. Not every leadership team, you know, is is a four star general equivalent, right? So it was a great opportunity for me, I think, to learn some valuable lessons about you know how to run an organization and how not to, how to be responsible with investor money, and you know what that looks like when you're not. Um, so again, I had a peek behind the curtain into the rise and fall of WeWork, and that was a great opportunity for me. For sure. At the tail end of that experience, once Adam Newman sort of got shown out, the new chairman from SoftBank came in uh, temporarily until they found a new CEO. And he said, hey, we're going back to core business. Every group that's not directly contributing to the core business, we're going to restructure and you guys are going to have to leave the company. Well, I was in the technology group. We were creating like innovative technology for WeWork focused on like the real estate development, construction, design, supply chain aspect of that. There's off-the-shelf solutions for that that they could go to. Yeah, it's not going to be as groundbreaking, but it would get the job done for a company that really needed to cut costs very quickly. Right. So we, I was at the time the chief of staff based in a remote office for about a 250 person organization. There was 50 of us in the office and, and this is in the Seattle area. The camaraderie there was actually very strong. Everybody liked working with each other. A lot of ex Amazon folks, people with strong yeah. resumes. And so we decided to take the opportunity and we shopped ourselves around as sort of an aqua hire. And we went around to different companies and we said, Hey, this is a group of, you know, software engineers, product managers, designers, which is if you know the market any at all right now, it's that's very difficult to stumble upon of, of just yeah. like, you know, a bunch of free agents with great resumes and technology. Right. And we went around to some big names and some medium sized names and some startups and ended up getting several offers without interviews or anything. We just chatted, you know, with the execs on these on these companies and and did kind of some semi loop interviews with some of our leaders and we were able to get the whole office uh, a job at WeWork, or excuse me, a job at Flexport. So everybody moved over there all at the same time. It was great. It was a super cool experience for me. I project managed the thing. And you know, we were sort of writing the playbook as we were building the plane as we were flying it and trying to yeah. figure out how this whole thing worked. I've never heard of anything like that before. And me neither. It was sort of uncharted territory. But yeah, super cool experience. And I, and I thought that was you know even a testament to Flexport leadership to be able to think outside the box and, and look for an opportunity to essentially hire a whole 50-person high-performing team at once. Oh, wow. The team was 50 people. That's amazing. That's a feat. That's really an aqua hire. <laughs> and there was a lot of internal dynamics too, because you know there, there was people with different motivations that wanted to go to different companies. Right. right we, had other, we had other offers. And the people that were as part of the leadership team, we knew that the deal was going to blow up if it wasn't everybody. Right. Right. If it starts getting into like it's 20 people, does Flexport or this other company really want to take 20 people? Do they want to take 10? Yeah. Probably not, especially if they didn't have a big presence there already, because many of them were considering starting an office there because they had, they'd be able to hit the ground running. So in we Seattle, knew that there yeah. was a lot in Seattle, that is. Yes, that's correct. So we knew that a lot of it hinged on getting everybody on board. So there was a lot of human aspects of this that we were trying to navigate as we were uh, working through the process. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That's actually not only an ingenious solution, but just very inspirational. I think from, like you said, the leadership and management's perspective to think creatively to help teams. And I think these days more than ever, it's less so about the company that you're with long-term, you know, the, the people that you work with uh, and the communities that you build. So maybe, maybe there's a startup idea there long-term. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think part of it was too, you know, as the chief of staff, I was heavily involved in recruiting and, and the executive that I supported was heavily involved in selling this story to our networks. So bringing the people over to WeWorks, I think we felt 
a level of personal responsibility of we sort of like put ourselves out there and said this is this is working you know because from our perspective it was working the technology was working you know there's a lot of reasons why things happen the way they happen from a corporate strategy perspective and so we brought these people over we were holding you know recruitment events and we were tapping our networks and we were actively marketing positions so we felt a certain degree of like you know we told these people this was going to work now they're about to be back on the uh on the job trail and, and i think we wanted to avoid that people have mortgages people have you know obligations and so i think we felt a little bit responsible for bringing people into that situation, right or wrong. Um, so that certainly helped us feel, I think, a lot better about looking out for the team and making sure that um, they were taken care of. Whether they took the job or not, it felt good to know that we did everything we could to help them land in a good place. Yeah, I think that's a perfect segue, helping people out. That seems to be a recurring theme in your life, right? whether it's protecting our country or helping your fellow um, classmates and friends. Can you share a little bit about the fundraiser that you had mentioned to me? Yeah. And that kind of the backstory to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, to take a step back, every, I think everybody's probably watching what's going on in Afghanistan right now, um, which is super troubling. Not That phrasing doesn't even do it justice. I watch the news all day and it's just, you know, it's really heartbreaking, the situation that we're in. You know, I spent 2015 to 2016 in Afghanistan. Um, my first part of the tour was at the Special Operations Institute in Kabul. So we were training. I was the head NATO advisor for training commandos and Afghan special forces that we would push out to the different regions to, to help them establish national security with the foresight that eventually we were going to leave. They needed to be able to secure their own country. And I met in that first half of the deployment, I met uh, a gentleman named Mirwais, who's a sergeant major of special forces. And what struck me about him is one, his English was fantastic. And he had a great sense of humor. And he was just Johnny on the spot with everything. I really just gravitated towards him very early. And I had the opportunity, actually, from one of my predecessors that was in my position, who had started this sort of grassroots initiative to take some of the special forces leaders in Afghanistan and bring them to the United States so they could see our institution, how we train special forces, things like that. So the opportunity to, I broke my tour up and I helped get this mission approved through the State Department, through the United States military. And I brought Mirwais and a couple other special forces leaders to the United States. And I took him to the White House and I took him to North Carolina, Fort Bragg, where the, that's the head of the Green Beret National Training Center. And I took him around and it was just like a fantastic experience. I took him to Wilmington Beach. And I remember things that we take for granted. It was so interesting because... He came up and had dinner. My parents came up and we had dinner together. And I took him to the beach the next day and he had never seen the ocean. I didn't even think about that. He never registered to me. And he would stand in the waves and the waves would just continue to hit him and knock him over. And he just kept getting up and standing in the waves. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's going to keep happening. The waves are going to keep coming. You know, he was, he was a super optimistic guy. And I think he, he really had hope that Afghanistan was going to turn out a certain way for the positive. And what's happened since then Obviously, you know, we're all watching the news is about a month ago, he had reached out and he said, hey, I know that the, the Americans are, are leaving. Would you, I would never ask you for this if I didn't need it, but can you give me $2,500 to pay for visas for me and my family to get out of the country? And the first thing that dawned on me is like, are we making these guys pay for visas? Where is mm-hmm. he going to get $2,500? It's not realistic in that, in yeah. that part of the world. So that was baffling to me. The second part was how difficult the visa process was for him, getting his paperwork approved, getting through the process. And so started asking him questions like, what do you get for $2,500? Like, well, I can process the visas. Okay, how are you going to get out of there? All right, like, what are you going to do when you get somewhere? Like, how are you going to feed your family? He's got several children, his wife. And so I started a, a GoFundMe for, for Mirwais. 
And I wanted to raise $15,000 just so he could have a, a decent start, right? Get out of the country, feed his family, not worry about paying for meals or anything like that. Right. And and so we've raised, actually, we've almost hit the goal. It's I think it's somewhere close to 13300 13400 now, which is more than enough money to get him started. So super happy about that. Super proud about that. The challenge is now with everybody watching the news is that everybody's stranded there right now. Like he can't even take the money. Like I, I got him transferred into his account. I've, I've gotten $5,000 transferred. From what I understand, he picked that, that money up. I can't send them any more money because the Taliban are controlling Kabul. I can't even get to a bank. I don't even think the banks are operational at this point. Can't get through checkpoints to get to the airport to process his visa. We're watching the news and, and they say Americans are able to get to these checkpoints. What about high-risk Afghanis that used to serve in, in special operations, right? Those are high-risk individuals If the Taliban found out who these people are. Because of the paperwork they need to get into Hamid Karzai Airport, needs to be held on their person. Now you add in the, the level of complexity of now you're taking your children through this. I just don't, you know, with the current plan or lack of plan in place, I'm just not sure how that's going to work. So super troubling, continuing to try to work every day to get him teed up for success, having him fill out the embassy evacuation link, um, make sure he, he's on there, make sure people are tracking him. And, and that's kind of where we're at today. Is there anything additional that we can do to help? I think in terms of Mirweiss, I'm feeling good about the direction. I think at a higher level, I think we need to be asking the questions that we're asking as a country of how do we get ourselves into this situation? I've heard a lot of, you know, obviously I watch the news probably like many people that listen to this every day. And a lot of it's focused on should we have left Afghanistan? I don't think that's the debate, at least from my perspective, isn't should we have left? I agree we should be. But there's a way to do that that's effective and safe for people. And we haven't done that. Right? You don't pull out all the troops before you pull out the non-combatants. And now you have a city that's controlled by a political terrorist organization with checkpoints everywhere that intends to cause harm. So I think we should be doing exactly what people are doing today is demanding answers on you know, who's responsible for this ineptitude you know, in planning. And now what's the course of action to fix this? That's what I'm really concerned about. Because we could all donate to the Mirwise Fund, but if he can't get to Hamid Karzai Airport, we're not doing anyone any favors. So I think we need to be asking, what's the solution to this? What's the plan? What's the, you know, let's get people in place that know how to deal with a crisis. Uh, a crisis. And the second thing I think is there's a lot of people doing some great things in Afghanistan. There's a lot of, and I could probably find the links later and share them with you, Sean, but there's people that are essentially raising money and chartering private planes to get people out of the country. That's where I would love to see support go. Of I saw one that was like, you know, every million dollars they're they're raising, they get another plane there with like several hundred people out of the country. Like that's some awesome stuff that's impactful and scalable. So that's where I would love if people were gonna, you know, support in two ways is one, keep asking these questions of what's the plan? You can secure an airport all you want. If people can't get to it, that's not a great solution. And it's not just about America, it's about tens of thousands of people that helped us along the way. If you think about our ability to have a strong level of national security and, and trust on the global scale. Like, who's going to want to partner with us after this? Who's going to trust that they are going to be taken care of when they help us? We need to fix it. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is is continue to look for nonprofit organizations that are raising money to get people out of there to support them after they land. I know I, I, somebody reached out the other day and said they volunteered to help once Afghans land in the United States to sh help shuttle them to, to where they'll be staying, their accommodations, things like that. There's a lot of opportunities out there to help these organizations that are rallying around this. Okay. Yeah. Please share those links after our interview and I'll definitely put it down in the episode description for people to, to check out and click on. Well, Andrew, 
thanks so much for taking the time to not only share that story, but share your own personal story as well. I think this is, uh, these are trying times for a lot of people. And I think just to have that space to give compassion, right, is, is I think really important. Yeah. Just, well, just you from, know, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I truly appreciate the platform to communicate this. And, you know, I didn't envision myself uh, going on a campaign around this. But what you realize is that that period of service there, you know, while it was several years ago, it leaves you with much more perspective and deep insights and understanding of what's going on over there. And it becomes sort of like your obligation to share that, I think, in many ways, because a lot of people out there that haven't had that experience of being in Afghanistan um, and deploying to that region, they want to help and they want to understand. I have people reaching out all day long, like, what does this mean? Like, why is this happening? Was this, should this have been avoided? Could this have been avoided? And absolutely. And if I'm not doing my I'm not doing my job in my own mind if I'm not sharing those perspectives because I think people want to help and they want to see this recover, but they don't really know where to go to help do that and help push that ball forward. I think it's important. And again, thank you for, for allowing me to have that platform to, to speak about it. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you, sir. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.